Jeremiah tonight. Uh, in fact, Jeremiah and Lamentations. Uh, Lamentations follows Jeremiah, and as you'll see later when we get to it, was written by him. So it's kind of like a postscript to Jeremiah's Lamentations. Uh, but the book of Jeremiah first. Um, there are two, two distinctive things about the book. Firstly, it's the largest in the Bible. Um, it's not, not chapters, it hasn't got the most chapters in. Isaiah's got more chapters than it, for example. But if you count up the number of words, Jeremiah is the longest book in the Bible. Um, the second distinctive feature is that I don't know any jokes about how he got his name. Um, but that aside, it's a bit more straightforward than Isaiah, uh, because there's, there's not, you know, like loads of stuff about the end times. And uh, so, relatively um, straightforward. Now, Jeremiah was a, a priest um, and a prophet as well, and, and, and his, his ministry spanned a period of 40 years. And the time period to put him in is that it all centred around the Babylonian captivity of Judah. So his ministry was, was down in Judah, and it was in the 40 years to the lead-up of the Babylonian captivity, and then overlapping, so that, you know, sort of like he carried on even after the captivity had, had happened. So to try and give you a perspective, like, let's, let's compare it to Isaiah. A hundred years earlier, Isaiah saw Jerusalem and Judah saved and delivered from Assyrian captivity. A hundred years early, Assyria took the northern kingdom, Israel, into captivity. And although the Assyrians made a play for Jerusalem and Judah, even to the point where you remember under the reign of Hezekiah, there was actually a siege of Jerusalem by the Assyrian army. Nevertheless, the ministry of Isaiah in Jerusalem at that time was part and parcel of, of, of how the Lord spared Judah, the southern kingdom, from going into captivity under the Assyrians in the way that the northern kingdom had. But now, a hundred years later, Judah is now to meet the same fate that Israel, the northern kingdom, had, only at the hands of the Babylonians. And so this is the context of the ministry of Jeremiah. He was a priest and a prophet in the southern kingdom. Remember, the northern kingdom, Israel, is gone. You know, finito, the ten lost tribes, never heard of again. And now the Babylonians, well, you know, sort of like in the 40-year lead-up to the captivity by the Babylonians. And so that's the ministry that, um, that he had. And you'll remember that even under the ministry of Isaiah, a hundred years earlier, Isaiah had said about that how Judah was eventually going to go into captivity under the Babylonians, and that a hundred years before the Babylonian Empire was an empire. So Jeremiah, you know, very much uh, sort of like taking Isaiah's mantle, but a hundred years later. Um, and Jeremiah actually sees the catastrophe that he worked so hard to avert. He actually lives through the Babylonian captivity, as we'll see later. And uh, in order to, to, to just help you to understand uh, 
the basis of the message that God raised him up to, to give to the Jews. Um, it's, it has a, a, like a five-fold aspects. So, so there are five aspects to the ministry of Jeremiah. And if you get hold of these, it, you know, it just makes the rest, you know, as you go through the book, more straightforward. And uh, the first aspect is simply, as I've already said, that he was raised up to proclaim to Judah, the southern kingdom, that they were going to be destroyed by the Babylonians in exactly the same way that the northern kingdom had been destroyed by the Assyrians. So he's raised up to say what happened to the northern kingdom a hundred years ago at the hands of the Assyrians is going to happen to us, the southern kingdom, Judah and Jerusalem. It's going to happen to us only at the hand of the Babylonians. So that's the first aspect. The second aspect of the message that he was raised up to proclaim was, however, if the people repented, because it was fundamentally the same sins that led the northern kingdom into Syrian hands were happening in the south. And he's saying, look, if we turn from our wickedness, if we turn from our sins, if we turn from our idolatry, then this judgment of the captivity will be spared us. So if we repent, the catastrophe will be averted. The third aspect developed as his ministry went on. Because he was preaching this, you know, the Babylonians are going to take us captive, but repent and it won't happen. Remember, his ministry was over a 40-year period. As time went by, eventually it got to the point where Judah went too far and the nation went beyond any chance of repenting. So it, it, a point came where they wouldn't turn from their sins and therefore the captivity was going to happen come what may. And so thirdly, once that became clear, once Jeremiah realised that the tragedy couldn't be averted, all right, he then preached a policy of submission to the Babylonian Empire. Because what he was saying, look, God is going to judge us, it cannot now be averted. Could have been, but you left it too late, can't be now. The Babylonians are going to invade us and take us over. So he's saying, submit to them. Receive it as the judgment of God. Because if you fight against it, the destruction will be even greater. So he preached a policy of submission to the Babylonian Empire. All right. Now, this, to many of the Jews, made him appear to be a traitor. So they're going to see a lot of false prophets raised up saying, oh no, God's going to deliver us from the Babylonians, blah, blah, blah. But they were false prophets. And Jeremiah, who was the true prophet, saying, no, he's not, submit to them, make it easy on yourself. He was viewed by many as being a traitor. And, and obviously that led to quite a hard time for him. The fourth aspect of the message that he had was that even though Judah was now going to be destroyed and the Babylonian captivity would happen, nevertheless, there would be a restoration to the land eventually. So he's saying, 
The captivity is going to happen. The Babylonians are going to come. We're going to go into captivity. But nevertheless, a day will come when we will be restored back into the land. And then his message goes one step further and points to a coming day when Israel would actually dominate the earth. And that is like the glimpse that you get in Jeremiah, only one in one chapter, but just one glimpse of um, the thousand year reign of Christ. And then the fifth aspect of the message that he was raised up to preach is that the Babylonian Empire would itself be destroyed at God's hand because of the evil that it brought on the Jews. So, so they're the, the, the five aspects of the message that he was raised up to preach. Just want to whip through the kings that he was contemporary with, just so you can really get a, you know, a, a, a picture of the history. Um, and he was actually born during the reign of King Manasseh, uh, who was the particularly nasty one who did you know, sort of like child sacrifice, etc. But nevertheless, who later on in his life did come back to the Lord and that, you know, and got, you know, like repented and sorted his life out before the Lord. He was born during that reign. And his ministry, uh, the first king was, was King Amon, who only lived, you know, reigned for one year. Then there was King Josiah. Now, he, he was like the good king and he had a bit of a, a reformation and, you know, brought Israel back to the Lord, which was good. Um, then you got Jehoahaz, um, also, uh, you know, sort of like called Shalom, uh, you know, like, like Jehoahaz had two names. And um, he only lasted for three months. Then you had Jehoiakim, Jehoiakim and Zedekiah, and they were the last of the kings of, Israel, of Judah during the Babylonians attacking and invading, etc., etc. So, you know, sort of like Jeremiah sort of like was preaching through the reigns of the last six kings of Judah, only one of them being a good king. The rest were... Uh, particularly a nasty lot and um, in particular Jehoiakim who we're going to see later was a real enemy of Jeremiah and during the reign of Jehoiakim Jeremiah really did have have a tough time and um, you know so so that kind of gives you an idea of a history just tie in with you know like the um, you know the actual kings of Judah now as with Isaiah it's the, the book isn't arranged in chronological order. It's chronological here and there. But again, remember, it's not a you know, it's not that he sat down at the end of 40 years and then wrote like a biography or an autobiography of his last 40 years. It's prophecies and revelation and words from the Lord that he he compiled but not necessarily in the order that they all, you know, because it was over a 40-year period. So again, as with Isaiah, don't expect great chronology because there's not there, you know, it's not there particularly, but wherever it's relevant to understanding a chapter, I'll locate the chapter in the chronology, you know, the events of, of Judah for you. But, uh, I mean, fundamentally, chapter 1 is chronological because um, in chapter 1, it, it actually records 
logically his, his calling to be a prophet. And um, he was reluctant to accept it, uh, you know, sort of like he knew, he knew the kind of treatment that prophets got and he knew what they went through and he was um, very loath to, you know, to accept that the Lord wanted him to be a prophet. And um, he, he tries to use his, his age as an excuse that he was young, a youth, he calls himself, which probably made him around 20 uh, when God actually called him. Um, you know, but, but I mean, the Lord didn't let him get away with that, you know, and, and, you know, and basically said that's kind of, that's no reason not to be a prophet, as it were, if I'm, if I'm calling you. Um, if, we, if we just read verses 9 and 10, and, and this is a kind of... Um, you know, sort of like a real key to understanding part of what the prophets were about um, in the Old Testament. And um, in verse 9, it says, Then the Lord reached out his hand and touched my mouth and said to me, Now I have put my words in your mouth. See, today I appoint you over nations and kingdoms to uproot and tear down, to destroy and overthrow, to build and to plant. Now notice, out of those six things, four of them are destructive. You know, because, I mean, you know, sort of like often God's judgment has to occur before the building takes place. And he's appointed over nations and kingdoms, not just Israel. But the point is, you know, that God was using all the nations that surrounded Israel. Indeed, the Babylonians were God's means of judgment, you know. And the point is that prophets during this time, I mean, they, you know, they, they literally had authority. I mean, the nations and the kings of the nations thought they had the authority, but in actual fact, the prophets had incredible authority because God was actually showing them what the outcome um, of things were going to be. And, um, you know, so, so, you know, here you've got the fact that God calls him. And, uh, you know, but, you know, but Jeremiah expresses his grave reluctance and, and he doesn't in any way want to be a prophet. But obviously, because he followed the Lord, he accepted it. You know, I mean, obviously he was obedient to the Lord. And then um, towards the end of the chapter, you actually get the first mention of the coming disaster at the hands of a kingdom from the north. And, of course, the kingdom from the north, everyone knew, was the Babylonian Empire. And so there you get it in chapter 1. This, you know, kind of like judgment is going to come from the north, from the Babylonian Empire. In chapters 2 and 3, Israel's faithlessness and idolatry is condemned. Now, Bear in mind, whilst there were two kingdoms, you had Israel in the north and Judah in the south. But obviously, once the northern kingdom, Israel, had been carted off into Assyrian captivity and, uh, you know, sort of like uh, gone for good, then you no longer needed these distinction of names. So therefore, the southern kingdom, which was the only Jewish kingdom left, from that point onwards was referred to as Judah and Israel as well, just a generic term, you know, the nation of Israel, the Jews. And so the nation's faithlessness is, is, is condemned by God um, through Jeremiah. 
and uh, the nation is uh, likened to an unfaithful wife. Now, that is exactly how Isaiah started off. That was, you know, the, the initial push behind the ministry of Isaiah, saying to, you know, the north and the south, because remember they were both on the go during the, uh, during, uh, the time of Isaiah, you know, this picture that because his people had deserted him and gone after idols, they were just like a wife who was being unfaithful. And, um, but the promise is there that if the nation returns to the Lord, then there would be great blessing waiting for her. So that was chapters 2 to 3. Chapter 4, um, you, you, you have a more detailed description of this destruction that was going to come from this kingdom in the north, and you get a, a graphic depiction there of the disaster, the destruction that the nation was going to go through uh, at the hands of this kingdom from the north, as I keep saying, was the Babylonians. Um, in chapter 5, the Lord outlines the sins in the nation that is bringing this disaster on them. Um, you know, the kind of things that constitute the unfaithfulness that God is about to judge them for. And in the list you have lying and being dishonest, because God hates that, lying lips. You know, he wants his people to be honest. Well, they weren't. Stubbornness is listed quite specifically. Violence and rebellion and general decadent lifestyles. People were falling in love with luxury and the more they were falling in love with luxury, the less right and wrong mattered and decadent social decay and with it a great increase in oppression and injustice. So the poor were being oppressed and you couldn't count on justice in any way at all. Well, this is all the kind of thing that the Lord hates. And because Israel was, was so guilty of those things, this is stated, or these are stated, as the reasons um, why judgment is coming upon them. Um, in chapter 6, you get a graphic description of a siege that Jerusalem is eventually going to undergo, um, even down to cannibalism the siege would become that bad. And of course, that is exactly what eventually happened. Uh, you know, before Jerusalem fell, the Babylonians laid siege to it. And, um, you know, and you get a graphic description. Of course, Jeremiah actually lived to see it. He lived through it. And that is where Lamentations comes from. You know, when we get to Lamentations, you'll see it. it, it it's Jeremiah lamenting what happened to... Um, his city and his people because they wouldn't get right with God. Now, in chapter 7, Jeremiah is, is sent to, to preach to the crowds outside the temple in Jerusalem and all Jews going in for worship. Remember, it wasn't always so much that Israel totally forsook the Lord. They didn't. But they had the Lord and they had their idolatry. So they had a certain amount of religious orthodoxy, but on the side was all the idolatry, the stubbornness, the cheating, the lying, immorality, you know. But here they were, as it were, 
on Sundays still going to church. And so God sends him and he stands outside the temple and he preaches to the people as they go in and come out of the temple. And, uh, well, actually, that's quite interesting because um, if we just read from, um, from verse 1, uh, this is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, stand at the gate of the Lord's house and there proclaim this message. So this is what he was there preaching. Hear the word of the Lord, all you people who Judah, who come through these gates to worship the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Reform your ways and your actions, and I will let you live in this place. I, if you repent, you won't get carted off into captivity. Do not trust in deceptive words and say, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. God's saying, don't, don't say that. That's deceptive. Because what they were saying is, well, the temple's here, God's with us, we're safe, we're safe. And they were finding security in their religiosity. And God was saying to them through Jeremiah, no, that's deceptive. Religiosity is nothing if it's not accompanied by a life that goes along with your words of submission to me, then I'll bring judgment on you. And it goes on to say, really change your ways and your actions. Deal with each other justly. If you do not oppress the alien, the fatherless or the widow. And the Lord goes on to say, look, you know, orthodoxy now, it's not what it's about at all. There's no reality, you know, sort of like, you know, your, your, your lips are saying all the right things, but your hearts are far from me. And so here's Jeremiah and all the Jews are going and he's saying, no, you know, it's sort of, don't, don't say the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. The Lord's not there anymore. He's gone because our lives aren't matching up what we're supposed to believe. And, uh, you know, and, and, and he tries to, to bring the worshippers as they go to the temple. He tries to get them to turn from their sins and to come back to the Lord, but to no avail. Jeremiah is not listened to, you know, I mean, to that extent, his ministry was a total failure. You know, he didn't, you know, Isaiah saw, if you like, the disaster averted, but for Jeremiah, Israel never repented, and uh, to that extent, he was a failure. But then, isn't it good to know, we're not responsible for results, we're responsible for being faithful. That's all that matters, being faithful. And, um, and in this chapter, chapter 7, it goes on to, to, to give very specific condemnation of uh, the child sacrifice that was going on in the valley of Ben-Hinnom. So even at this time, child sacrifice, you remember that Manasseh started that off, and every now and then it recurred. And at this particular time, here they are, going down, oh, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, and yet there's a site of child sacrifice just outside of Jerusalem. And, you know, and Jeremiah is saying, look, you know, you've got to repent of that. You, you, you can't tie it up. And, of course, this valley of Ben-Himon eventually gave its name Gehenna to the lake of fire. That, that was where it came from. Because eventually, because Israel was so, as eventually it looked back, it was so disgusted at what had happened there that they turned it into the rubbish dump. And, you know, sort of like, and what they did is they kept it burning the whole time. So at this place, uh, you know, burnt 
all the time, you know, to keep putrefaction down and stuff like that. So all the rubbish went and it burnt the whole time. And eventually, by the time of Jesus, was, you know, sort of gave its name, Gehenna, which is in the Greek, to the actual lake of fire. That's, that's, that's where the, the name Gehenna comes from. In chapters 8 and 9, uh, you get specific messages to um, the priests and the prophets. Uh, you know, and God, God's saying that even the priests and the prophets are like it. It wasn't just the people at large, but the leadership was like it. The leaders were as bad as the people, if not worse than the people. And in these chapters, Jeremiah just weeps. He actually, at one point, he just bursts out into tears. He's actually called the weeping prophet by some, because he, he cries. Because he's just, it's so sad, so broken. It's rather like Jesus when he looked out over Jerusalem, you know, remember he, you know, very much, oh, how I wish I could gather you as a, you know, sort of that, such sadness that, you know, that God's people would not submit to him. And in these chapters, Jeremiah weeps, weeps for the people because of what they're doing, what they're doing to the Lord and the fact that they wouldn't repent and the fact of what was going to come upon them as a result of it all. In chapter 10, you have um, a denunciation of idolatry. So there Jeremiah homes in on that specific thing. Um, the first commandment, you know, and, and, and is Israel breaking it all over the place. Idolatry was all idolatry was guaranteed to bring judgment on Israel. Always did. Um, and of course what's interesting is that as they got into idolatry, so their personal sin increased. You know, because you, you take on the characteristics of the God you worship. You know, the one you worship truly. So that, you know, if people, if their true God is material things, they become materialistic. You see? Whatever your true God is, you'll be like it. And so, obviously, because the people got into idolatry, they left the true God, became less and less like him. Then, of course, all the other sins, violence, murder, um, oppression of the poor, all these things got worse and worse and worse because the further they got from the one true God, the less their lives reflected the holiness and the character of the one true God. And, and, and so obviously there's a, a, a time all the time and idolatry was always at the absolute heart of the problem. And then after that denunciation, you get a, a prayer that he prays that God will judge all the nations, not just Israel, but all the nations. Um, you know, you found that the prophets were always very patriotic, quite rightly so. And, uh, you know, and there was always a sense that whenever they were praying judgment on their own people, they were always very aware that the nations that surrounded them were worse. And so obviously it was important to them not just to pray that God would judge them, but God would judge the nations, the Gentiles as well. And, you know, obviously Jeremiah is no different in that respect. In chapter 11... Uh, you have a, 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 a specific proclamation from God through Jeremiah that the covenant between him and them as a nation is now officially broken. 
So now you get God's word to the nation, right, that's it, it's broken, the covenant is off. Now, once the nation got to that point, captivity had to follow. Because once they'd broken the covenant to that extent, then the ultimate judgment will come upon them. They lost the land. And, uh, you know, so this was kind of the time when it, it, it went beyond the point of no return. And, um, and at this point, Jeremiah, who, who came from a place called Anathoth, that was his hometown, and um, he now discovers that his hometown have, have hatched a plan to kill him. So, so, so now he's, I mean, he's, he's not exactly popular up to this point in any way at all. Now he proclaims the covenant is off, it's broken. And, um, and they plan to kill him. You can see a real parallel in the life of Jesus there, can't you? When Jesus actually declared that you've, you've now committed the unforgivable sin, you've rejected me as Messiah, you've committed that national sin. Yeah, because they said that he was um, of the devil. And once Jesus kind of, you know, after that, it was all, all out to kill him. And so, real parallels here. So, Jeremiah becoming all the time more and more hated um, by his own people, and, and these people of his hometown would have been the people he grew up with. It's not, um, you know, you've got to remember that, uh, I mean, in modern life, uh, the, the truth is that the average person, you know, sort of like, you know, the average person here, even if it's just travelling to work, and, you know, particularly for those of you who go on the tube, you see more people in one day than people in the ancient world saw their whole life. See? Because obviously they didn't travel the same way that we did. So the point is, I mean, you know, for most of us, probably where we grew up, you know, those people who we grew up with and were at school with, well, I mean, they, they could be anywhere across the world. Well, at this time, in the ancient world, they were where you left them, in your hometown. They ain't gone anywhere. And it was all very, very personal. So here is Jeremiah. These are his friends. Well, he hasn't got any now, has he? He's lost the lot. And in, in chapter 12, he complains to the Lord about it. So chapter 12, we get you know, the fact that, that now Jeremiah, things have been going badly for him. Now he discovers that his own hometown want to kill him. Now he, he kind of complains to the Lord. And you get this chapter, this prayer of complaint. And what he's saying to the Lord is that the wicked enjoy a nice, easy life. They, they weren't going through what he was going through. I mean, you know, it's like he was, he was following the Lord and proclaiming God's word, and he was going through a really bad time. And yet these people that he was preaching against, they, they were having a great time. They were, you know, living was easy for them. Obviously, eventually it wouldn't be because judgment was coming upon them. But at this particular time, all he could see is how hard it was for him and how easy it was for those who weren't being faithful. And, uh, and the Lord answers him. And, uh, and, and the answer is, the Lord tells him, well, it's going to get worse. Which, which probably wasn't what Jeremiah wanted to hear at all. I expect Jeremiah wanted to, you know, sort of hear from the Lord, oh, well, yes, you've done, now I'm going to vindicate you and I'm going to build you up and I'm, you know, and all the, 
all the people who are doing these horrible things, they're going to come and they're going to kneel at your feet and they're going to get converted and they're going to say, oh, we're sorry, Jeremiah. And that's what Jeremiah was wanting to hear. Well, the Lord says, OK, I've heard your complaint. This is my answer. The worst is yet to come. And uh, it got worse, you know, I mean, sort of like, you know, he's got another 30 odd years to go and it got worse and worse and worse. Good news or what? Um, this, this is exactly, you know, you, this is probably saying this, this is why I didn't want to be a prophet. Because he knew, he, he knew, he knew the history of other prophets. He weren't a twit. And, uh, you know, so now he's really feeling the pinch of it. Now in chapter 13 you get um, an acted out parable, you know, like, you know, sometimes the prophets would act, act things out, you know, do something symbolic. And what he does is um, he gets a belt, right, he takes a belt and he, he, he kind of buries it under a rock by the river Euphrates. And what happens is that the, the, the belt, you know, because it's all wet and damp and stuff like that, it becomes rotten and dirty, you know, like putrid, really disgusting, you know, as a leather belt left to get damp in a river wood, really disgusting. And the point that the Lord wanted to make to the nation through this is that in his eyes, that's what the nation had become. And in the same way that if you, if you had a belt and you thought, oh, where's my belt? And you found that it had been, you know, by a damp river for a few months or something. And you picked it up and it's absolutely honking. You'd say, oh, I'm not wearing that belt. Now, that is exactly what God now says to Israel. He says, I'm not wearing you anymore. I'm not touching you. Because you're so filthy. Because you've become so disgusting. And so that putrid belt became a, a prophetic parable. You know, parable. <laughs> parable to the nation this is a, this isn't the kind of stuff that gets you invited back next week is it proclaiming this sort of stuff but it, it, it was what it was what Jeremiah was called to preach and uh, then he um, gives them the picture of filled wineskins you know he, he tells all about wineskins and uh, and then he goes on to say that uh, they're a picture of Israel's drunkenness, because obviously wherever you get immorality, you get drunkenness and stuff like that. But that it was also something else as well, and that even though at the moment they're, they're, they're drunk and all happy on wine and booze and stuff like that, the truth is that they're going to end up reeling like drunk men under the judgment that God is eventually going to bring on them. And, and so there's a, a kind of a two-edged sword there. This wineskin thing depicts the fact that they, they were drunk at the time. But then Jeremiah's saying, look, you know, you're going to reel like drunken men under the judgment that God is eventually going to um, bring a, upon us. Now, this bit was happening during the, uh, the reign of Jehoiakim. So this particular bit is relatively close to the, uh, you know, the kind of the end of Judah, as it were. And, um, and in this chapter, you get a dirge that Jeremiah kind of like pens, you know, like a, a dirgy song. And it's about the king and his mother, you know, Jehoiakim and his mum. And, and, and this dirge was, was, you know, about God's judgment on them and, and, and the both of them were eventually taken into captivity. So a kind of a, a woe are and, and, and it was the king 
and the king's mother because of their sin and their evil. And, and then at the end of the chapter, there are various woes that he pronounces um, on Jerusalem, you know, woe to Jerusalem because of this and woe because of that and, and, and a list of, of sins there. Now in chapter 14 and 15, and again, let me remind you that this isn't necessarily particularly chronological. Can you see different chapters can be relating to different points, okay? But in, uh, in, in chapters 14 and 15, um, a drought that was on at the time, uh, whatever that time was, this is probably fairly early on in his calling, uh, that, that there's a drought on. And this drought is, is said to be judgment from God. And, you know, that was one of the classical, you know, sort of like in Deuteronomy and under the preaching of Moses, drought was one of the signs of God's judgment being on the nation. So there's a drought on, and Jeremiah tells the people that, you know, it's, it's, it's a judgment from, from God. And, um, and he intercedes, he then starts praying for the nation. You know, saying, oh, you know, Lord, bring them round, you know, you know, interceding so that the Lord wouldn't judge them. And the Lord tells him not to bother. You know, he says, don't bother. It's too late. They've gone beyond the point of no return. And, uh, you know, and then the Lord, you know, speaks a message of condemnation against the false prophets. Because all the false prophets in Israel, they were saying, oh, God's going to bless us, God's going to bless us. Whereas Jeremiah was saying, he's not going to bless you. You haven't repented, he's going to judge you, you see. And so there's a, a kind of, you know, a word of condemnation against the false prophets. And as a result of God saying that, he intercedes again. He says, oh Lord, save, save the people. And the Lord tells him that even if Moses and Samuel prayed for the people, he wouldn't hear. You know, he's saying, no, Jeremiah, they've gone to the point of no return. I'm not... I'm not hearing your prayer of your prayer for the people, all right? And he says, and what's more, even if Moses and Samuel were, were there praying with you, I wouldn't listen because the people have gone too far. And uh, so the judgment is now unavoidable. And uh, we saw that earlier. So this cha these chapters belong back in the other chapter where we saw that. But nevertheless, the Lord says that ultimately a deliverance will come. Because, of course, after the captivity, they got back into the land, didn't they? And uh, in, in chapter 16 and 17, um, Jeremiah is forbidden to marry or have children. So he's now, this was probably again fairly early on in his calling, and the Lord tells him that he's not to marry, not to have children. The reason being that the future is going to be so terrible that he wouldn't want to be bringing children into it. So another, another jolly, you know, jolly word from the Lord there. And uh, he's, he's forbidden by the Lord to attend funeral meals or to take part in any kind of feasting at all. He could eat on his own, but he wasn't to take part in any public feasting at all. Again, because he was a symbol, he was a walking, living, breathing symbol that God's judgment was on the nation. And then the Lord tells him to tell the people that when they ask why is this disaster coming on us, as eventually they would, when the Babylonians do march in and, and you know, the business, the captivity starts, then, you know, the people are obviously going to say, well, why, Jeremiah? And, and the Lord says, look, when they, when they do, tell them it's because of 
their sin, because they're so wicked, because they're so unfaithful. But tell them as well that one day I'm going to restore them to the land. And, uh, and then in the rest of, of that chapter, the, you know, got, you know, the terribleness of sin is outlined. And Sabbath breaking is, is condemned as a kind of a symbol of their rebellion against the Lord, the fact that they were taking no notice whatsoever of uh, God's commands for the Sabbath. Then in uh, chapters 18 to 20, he's uh, sent to um, a potter's house. Uh, you know, so he's, he's a, a potter, you know, working on pots and pans and stuff like that. And, um, and, and God declares Israel to be clay in his hand. And that because Israel, the clay in his hand, he can do what he likes with them. In the same way that the potter can do what he likes with his clay, God can do what he likes with Israel. And uh, which, of course, was to judge them. He can bless them or he can judge them. It's purely up to him. He is the sovereign Lord. And throughout the Bible, the picture of the potter and the clay is always God's absolute sovereignty. Not just over Israel, but over the nations. You know, there's not a nation in the world has ever done anything except what God ordained it to do. That is the sovereignty of God over human history in regards to the nations. Uh, then, then, then Jeremiah complains at the whispering campaign going on against him and, uh, you know, sort of, you know, sort of says, Lord, I don't like it. We're not told what the Lord's response was, but probably along the lines of, oh, well, there's worse to come yet, as you'll see later. And, uh, you know, so Jeremiah's little moan there, and I'm right with him on it. You know, I'm right with him. I agree with him completely. I wouldn't have liked it either. And then he, he, he buys a jar at this potter's house, you know, sort of like big prophetic act, and he takes it out to the valley of Ben-Himon, you know, the child sacrifice, blah, blah, blah. And he smashes the jar in the valley, he smashes it. You know, obviously there'd be a crowd around, and then he, this is what God's going to do to Israel. Not, as I say, it won't get you asked back next week, will it? But that's, that's, that, that's what he said. Then he goes back to the temple, and he preaches there, probably to reiterate the point, just so you understand why I smashed the jar from the potter's house, because God's going to smash you, all right? And uh, they beat him up. <laughs> Poor old Jeremiah, they beat him up. They, they set on him, and they beat him up, and then they throw him in jail overnight. And at that point, he complains bitterly to the Lord about his treatment. I don't blame him either. I would. You know, obviously this guy's human, the Lord understands. I just want to read verse 7, 7 and 9 here. You know, he's been beaten up, he's in jail now. Look, he says, Oh Lord, you deceived me, and I was deceived. He wasn't, because the Lord told him it was going to get worse, you know. He's probably, probably thought, oh, I'm sure the Lord promised me blessing, but the Lord hadn't promised him our time. You overpowered me and prevailed. I am ridiculed all day long, everyone mocks me. Whenever I speak, I cry out, proclaiming violence and destruction. So he didn't have any good news for him, so they wouldn't repent. So the word of the Lord has brought me insult and reproach all day long. Listen to this. But if I say, I will not mention him or speak any more in his name, his word is in my heart like a fire, a fire shut up in my bones. I am weary of holding it in. Indeed, I cannot. And he's saying, but Lord, I know if I shut up and stop being faithful to you, then I'd be treated better. But he said, Lord, I can't. I can't. Your, your word, it, it burns inside me like a fire. So no matter how hard it gets, no matter how much persecution one might suffer for following the Lord, 
Jeremiah knew that it was, you know, he had to keep going. He, he couldn't but speak the word of God, no matter what the cost was to him personally. Right, in, in chapter 21, um, this is King Zedekiah. So, so this, is, this is right at the end now. You know, Zedekiah was the last king, all right? And, um, you know, like the siege is on, Babylonians are there, Nebuchadnezzar has his army there, and Zedekiah inquires of Jeremiah. So he's Jeremiah, still there, he survived all this, you know, he's still there. And, um, and he asks him if God is going to deliver them. He says, is God going to deliver us? The Babylonians are there, and Nebuchadnezzar, his army, is the Lord going to deliver us? Probably thinking that when this happened a hundred years ago, in the ministry of Isaiah, the Lord did deliver us, and the Assyrians, remember Sennacherib, the Assyrians, God did deliver us, and he's saying, Jeremiah, is God going to do it this time? And of course, Jeremiah says no. He says no. He says surrender. That's what you've got to do, surrender to the Babylonian Empire. Accept that they are God's judgment on you, surrender to them. Because if you do, you'll make it easier on yourself. You see, the point was, because Jerusalem resisted, it was all the worse. Eventually, Jerusalem was totally destroyed. Needn't have been. Jeremiah was there saying, look, if you just give yourself over to the Babylonians, surrender, give in this is God doing it, then the captivity ain't going to be nice, but you won't be destroyed, and Jerusalem will be okay. But they didn't listen, and so Jerusalem was destroyed. And, uh, you know, so, again, right up to the end, the people didn't listen. In chapter 22, you have proclamations against the three kings who came before Zedekiah, Remember, it's not chronological, but here are prophetic words against um, those kings. Jehoahaz, Jehoiakim, and Jehoiakim. All right, Both, those three kings, all evil. Zedekiah wasn't exactly a good king, but he was a little bit—he was a bit friendly towards Jeremiah. You know, when no one was looking, he was nice to Jeremiah, but the others hated him, absolutely hated him all the way. Uh, in chapter 23, you have a kind of a, a prophetic condemnation against Israel's leaders as being evil shepherds. Shepherds who, rather than caring for the sheep, are actually getting what they can out of the sheep. And then th this is followed by a messianic prophecy. Not a lot of that in Jeremiah, but here's a bit of it here. And uh, a prophecy of a righteous branch. Now, we, we've seen the branch before, haven't we? But the idea of a righteous branch. And this righteous branch will be a wise, just and righteous king. Obviously, very much in distinction to the kings that Israel was used to having. And that this righteous branch will be called the Lord our righteousness. That, that is what this branch will be called. And... Um, What's ironic here is that this particular chapter again happened during the reign of Zedekiah. And Zedekiah's name, ironically, means the Lord is my righteousness. And there's a, a play on words there with Zedekiah's name. And uh, in effect, Jeremiah's saying that when Messiah comes, he's going to be the king that you should be but aren't. He's going to be the king that we should have but, but hardly ever do have. He's going to be the king that we were always meant to have. 
And then there's a prophecy against the false prophets. Um, again, the false prophets all the time saying God's going to intervene, he's going to deliver us from the Babylonian Empire. That's all right, we're fine, God's with us. And, uh, you know, sort of, so that's false. And, and you know, and the Lord tells them that their, their prophecies are lies and delusions and uh, that their lives are completely unholy. Because, of course, their, their own personal lives would not have reflected the holiness of God in any way at all. In chapter 24, um, historically this is located at the point where King Jehoiakim was carted off to Babylonia. Remember that the captivity happened in stages. There was the initial carting of people off, all right? And then after that, because Jerusalem kept rebelling, then you got the siege of Jerusalem. Eventually the Babylonian Empire destroyed Jerusalem completely. But at this point, this is uh, when King Jehoiakim was carted off to Babylonia. And uh, Jehoiakim being the, the, the king before Zedekiah. And, um, and so Jehoiakim has gone off into captivity with the first wave of captives that Nebuchadnezzar carted off with him. And, um, you know, and, and, and placed like puppet governors and that, and, and they kept rebelling, and so eventually Nebuchadnezzar destroyed Jerusalem completely. But at, at this point, Jeremiah has a vision of two baskets of figs. So he's sort of like basket one and basket two. And in one basket there were good figs, but in the other basket there were bad figs. And the interpretation of this is that the good figs represented the Jews who were already in exile. Because it was from those Jews already in exile that eventually the restoration to the land would come. All right. But the bad figs were King Zedekiah back in Jerusalem and all his leaders who were resisting the Babylonian army still. Because the Jews who had gone off into captivity that was right, that's what God wanted for them. But Zedekiah and his cronies decide, no, we're going to fight, you know. And it was a result of them fighting against the Babylonians that, you know, the city was destroyed completely. And so they're the bad figs, out of God's will to the very last. And of course, right up to the last, the false prophets are there saying, don't worry, God's going to deliver us, hold out, God will intervene. And there was Jeremiah, a lone voice, saying, no, the Babylonians are the agents of God's judgment. Surrender to them. And, of course, he was seen to be a traitor, a traitor to God's people, which, of course, he wasn't. He was, you know, the true patriot, really. In chapter 25, you get the prophecy, which was to become, you know, sort of like very significant for one young man called Daniel a few years later. Um, a prophecy that the length of this captivity was going to be 70 years. So that was good. Now, you know, the Lord tells the people how long they were going to be in captivity. And after that, Babylon, along with all the nations of the world, because Babylon by then was ruling all the nations of the world, will come unto judgment. So here's a prophecy. The captivity is underway. It's going to last for 70 years, but God is going to judge the Babylonian Empire. Um, 
chapter 26, uh, Jeremiah is, is now brought to trial. And, uh, you know, you kind of get a, a, a mock trial and, and there are people who want him to be put to death. But he just gets enough people supporting him to get acquitted, all right? Um, but another prophet called Uriah isn't so fortunate. And he, he had worked with Jeremiah and he, he'd fled to Egypt. He'd had enough, but he was caught and brought back, and so they executed him instead. But Jeremiah, you know, fights to live, li fights to live another day, lives to fight another day here. Um, in chapter 27, he, he makes a, a, an oxen-type yoke, and, and, you know, and he puts it, you know, on his back, and he goes around Jerusalem, you know, preaching that Israel and all the other nations are going to end up in bondage to Nebuchadnezzar. Um, you know, sort of like they're going to come under the Babylonian yoke. So he goes around Israel preaching that. And, uh, but nevertheless tells them, but restoration will happen. You know, we are going to come back into the land after the captivity. Then in chapter 28, one of these false prophets, a guy called Hananiah, he, he, like, he, he tears the, joke, you know, the, the yoke off of Jeremiah, like rips it off, all very symbolic in that. And... Um, and this is to symbolise his prophecies that we won't go into captivity. So here, Hananiah says, no, Jeremiah is the false prophet, you see. So what Jeremiah does is that he pronounces a curse against Hananiah, and uh, fairly soon afterwards, Hananiah dies. So I, th I think the point was made there fairly well. Um, in chapter 29, Jeremiah writes to the exiles who are already in Babylon, you know, the first wave, and, and he encourages them in the letter to, to bear their captivity submissively. You know, he says, look, submit to the Babylonians. Don't fight them. Just, like, take it on the chin. It's discipline. Take it on the chin like a man. That's, that's what he's saying. And he reassures them that in 70 years, the nation will be restored back into the land. Now, there were false prophets in Jerusalem and there were false prophets in the Babylonian captivity who went across in the first wave of Jews. And one of them, called Shemaiah, starts a campaign against Jeremiah. So Jeremiah's written to the Jews in Babylon to say, look, don't worry, no problem, bear it submissively. In 70 years, you'll, you know, kind of like be back, as it were. Well, not them, but, you know, their descendants. And uh, so Shemaiah starts a campaign against Jeremiah. So then Jeremiah writes back to the exiles and condemns uh, Shemaiah, you know, and tells them, oh, look, he's a, he's a false prophet. In chapter 30 to 31, you get a, 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 like a poem, you know, sort of very graphic, very descriptive, um, like a poem of, of Israel's eventual restoration to the land. And it's, it's written in such a way that it, it also clearly foreshadows the millennial time, you know, when Jesus is ruling on the earth. So, so, so there's just a glimpse of the end times, but, but, but Jeremiah is not about the end times. But certainly in those chapters you get... The, you know, a description of Israel coming back into the land and it sort of like works as a kind of a, you know, foreshadowing the eventual millennial reign of Jesus when, when Israel is literally ruling the earth. And it's in those chapters, chapters 30 and 31, that you get the prophecy of the new covenant that God would eventually make with his people. One that isn't written on tablets of stone, but written on the heart. We saw that in the Law and Grace series, didn't we? That prophecy about the new covenant changing people from the inside with a new heart. That comes uh, in those chapters there in Jeremiah.
Now, in chapter 32, uh, we, you know, we now go back, the, the, the actual siege of Jerusalem is happening. So the Babylonian army is, is laying siege to Jerusalem. Nebuchadnezzar is like at the gates, as it were. Um, and in this chapter, we find him under arrest. Um, and, uh, you know, like house arrest. And, uh, and the Lord instructs him to, um, to buy a field. He does this through his secretary, his secretary called Barak, all right? And, um, and the Lord tells him to buy a field in his hometown, Anathoth, you know, where they wanted to kill him, from his cousin Hananel, right? And the reason that the Lord tells him to do it, I mean, the Babylonian army is there about to wipe out Jerusalem completely, all right? And here, Jeremiah is told by the Lord to buy a field in his hometown. And of course, the reason that he does this is to give substance to his prediction that eventually Israel was going to be restored. So what Jeremiah is saying, he's putting his money where his mouth was, wasn't he? He's saying, well, okay, we're going to be carted off, we're going to be destroyed now, but we're going to be back in 70 years, so therefore I'll have that field over there, please. So it's waiting for my descendants when they come back. So you get that. Um, and uh, then in chapter 33, you get a repeat of going back to the prophecy about the righteous branch. You know, so a, a repeat messianic prophecy there. So a repeat of chapter 23. And, um, and that it would be in his reign that Israel would be ultimately restored. So again, uh, just a little peekaboo there to the end times and the millennial kingdom. Um, in chapter 34, uh, we get Jeremiah warning Zedekiah that, that now Jerusalem is about to fall. All right, so he's saying, this is it, this is the end. Now, as a result of that, Zedekiah releases a load of slaves in accordance with Sabbath law that he hasn't complied with. So Jeremiah says, right, you know, basically, this is it, Zedekiah. It's all over now. You know, the army's there, they're besieging us, we're going to fall. Any, any day now, and the Babylonians are going to march in, and it's all going to be over. So what Zedekiah does is, is, is it right, okay, I'll release those slaves. He complies with the divine law that thus far he hadn't complied with. Now, when he does that, the Babylonian army temporarily vanishes. And in fact, what happened was that they experienced an Egyptian incursion into their own land. So in the midst of them laying siege against Jerusalem, they vanish. Suddenly they're gone. Now you remember something similar happened when the Assyrians besieged a hundred years earlier, only they never came back. But now the Babylonian army, they vanish, they're gone. All right. And it, it, it was in fact to sort out an Egyptian incursion into their territory. Now as a result of that, Zedekiah immediately enslaved those slaves again. Now, what was happening was this. He complied with something that the law said he should have done, clearly in order to try and twist God's arm. When the Babylonian army vanished, he thought, oh, good, God's delivered us, we're home dry, we're safe now. And so he, he, he undid the good that he'd just done, and he enslaved those people again. So the point was that it was 
absolutely insincere obedience. Doing what Jeremiah told him to do, but only to try and manipulate God. And of course, you know, Jeremiah pronounces a judgment against him for it, and the Babylonian army come back again and, and, and finish, you know, the city off. So, you know, the point was that when the Babylonians went, Zedekiah thought, oh, oh right, oh that's good, God's delivered us. And immediately went back into the sin he just supposedly repented of, which showed it was insincere obedience. That's no good, it's got to be sincere from the heart. Um, in, in chapter 35, and this, this, this goes back a few years earlier, uh, there's um, a particular family, tribe, um, amongst the people called the Rechabites, a family who had been really faithful to the Lord. And basically, in this chapter, the Lord tells Jeremiah to, to tell Israel that everyone should be like that family. So that this family, the family of Rechab, the Rechabites, are held up as a model for what all Jews ought to be like. So, you know, the Lord's saying, they're an example. I want everyone to be like that. Um, in chapter 36, uh, at this point now, Jeremiah is commanded to write all his prophecies down. So now he starts compiling his book. And this happened in Jehoiakim's reign. Now, eventually, Jehoiakim ends up with his officials saying, hey, you've got to hear this, all right? And so they read the prophecies of Jeremiah to Jehoiakim, the king. And what Jehoiakim does is that every paragraph that is read, all right, so his officials read a bit of the book. And as they read a paragraph, Jehoiakim got a pair of scissors and he cut that paragraph out and he burns it. And then they read another prophecy from Jeremiah and he cut it out and he burns it. That was his attitude to the word of the Lord. You know, burning God's word, disposing of it, cutting God's word out and destroying it as if you can get round it like that. And, uh, you know, so he completely, you know, sort of destroyed the book. And so then Jeremiah has to write the whole thing out again. And when he's finished it, pronounces judgment against Jehoiakim for burning it in the first place. So these kings never learnt that you can't win. Um, then in chapters 37 and 38, um, what you've got here is that we go back to the point where the Babylonians have vanished, lifted the siege. Now, we saw that earlier. There was this temporary time when the Babylonian army vanished because they were dealing with an Egyptian incursion elsewhere. Now, there, at that point, Jeremiah assures everyone that they will be back. Don't, don't think this is God delivering us. It isn't. They'll be back, you see. So there's rejoicing in the streets, and Jeremiah's going to say, no, they'll be back, they'll be back, it's God's judgment, they'll be back. And so what he does is he goes out on a journey, he, you know, he goes out for a walk, and he's arrested, and he's accused of being a traitor, and that he was going to the Babylonian camp, which he wasn't at all. And so they beat him up, and they throw him into a dungeon, you know, so he ends up in a cell. Then Zedekiah hears about it, all right? And uh, what he does is then he puts him under house arrest because Zedekiah liked him a bit. But then some other people persuaded Zedekiah to throw him in a mud hole under someone's house, a cistern, a well. <laughs> so then Zedekiah has him thrown into this mud hole. 
But then some other people persuade Zedekiah to let him out of the mud hole. And so Zedekiah does it. Zedekiah did whatever the, you know, whatever the last person told him to do, he did. I mean, there are some Christians like that, aren't there? And uh, so, you know, eventually, eventually Jeremiah is rescued from this mud pit, all right? And, uh, and then Zedekiah has a secret meeting with him because he was a friend in secret, as long as no one knew. And, uh, you know, like half a believer, really, Zedekiah was. And, um, and, and in that meeting, Jeremiah, again, tries to persuade him, look, surrender to Nebuchadnezzar, surrender. You'll make it worse for yourself if you don't. But, um, you know, but Zedekiah didn't take any notice. Uh, in chapters 39 to 41, you then have the story of when the Babylonian army returned, and, uh, and, you know, Jerusalem was burned to the ground, along with the temple. And um, Zedekiah, um, his, he, he, he was made to watch his children being put to death, and he had his eyes gouged out, and then they dragged him off, you know, to Babylon. Now, if he'd listened to Jeremiah in the previous chapter and surrendered, that wouldn't have happened to him. You know, foolish. Um, now, at this point, Nebuchadnezzar appoints a Jew called Gedaliah to become his governor in Jerusalem. So basically, Jerusalem has been destroyed, it's in ruins now. But the Babylonian king appoints a friend of Jeremiah to be the governor. And, um, and he actually, Nebuchadnezzar, who knew Jeremiah, actually found Jeremiah being taken back to Babylon. And he says, no, I want him to help Gedaliah. So Jeremiah is sent back to Jerusalem to, to help, you know, sort of govern the province. And, um, and this guy, Gedaliah, who Nebuchadnezzar appointed, ruled for three months as the governor. But then he was assassinated. And he was assassina assassinated by another Jew called Ishmael. And this Jew called Ishmael assassinated Gedaliah for political reasons, all to do with seeing him as a puppet governor of Nebuchadnezzar, and, uh, you know, and so he's assassinated um, for political reasons, you know, by a zealot who thought, well, he's, he's, you know, he's a puppet of the Babylonians. And, uh, and in chapters 42 and 43, is that fearing reprisals for Gedaliah's murder, because Nebuchadnezzar had appointed a governor, and now the Jews think, oh, crikey, when he finds out that the governor's been murdered, he's going to come back and going to get, get trampled on even more. So what they do is that a whole load of them, they flee to Egypt. They say, come on, let's go to Egypt. We'll be safe there. Now, Jeremiah tells them not to go. He says, look, it's not God's will. You mustn't go down to Egypt. But they go anyway, and they kidnap him. They make him go with them. And whilst he was in Egypt, he prophesied that Egypt was going to fall to the Babylonians as well. So he says, don't think you're safe here, because you're not. And that's what happened. Egypt fell to the Babylonian Empire. And um, in chapter 44, he prophesies against the Jews in Egypt for their continued idolatry. And that, that, that's where we leave Jeremiah, in Egypt, having been kidnapped by a group of Jews who went there. All right. That, that ends the book proper, as it were. Um, chapter 45 is... Um, a message that has been preserved from Jeremiah to his secretary, Barak, to encourage him. He had a secretary called Barak, and he writes a letter of encouragement to him, like. Right? 
Um, in chapters 46 to 49, you get prophecies of general judgment to the surrounding nations. You get prophecies against Egypt, against Philistines, against the Moabites, against Ammon, Edom, Damascus, Hazor and Elam. All right, so there's a chapter of three chapters against the various nations. Four chapters against the various surrounding Gentile nations. And then in chapter 50 and 51, you get a detailed prophecy about Babylon's eventual downfall, which of course happened and is recorded for us in the book of Daniel 70 years later. So there's a, a prophecy uh, about how God's judgment eventually came against the Babylonian Empire, as both Isaiah and Jeremiah said that it would. And then in chapter 52, you get a retelling of the fall of Jerusalem, which is basically a repeat of chapter 39 and a repeat of 2 Kings 24 and 25. So just a bit of history there. And that ends the book of Jeremiah. So a bit bitty, but that's basically it. But remember, we leave him in Egypt as it were, having been carted off there by the Jews who thought it'd be safe to go to Egypt, even though it wasn't. So, so there endeth uh, the book of, um, of Jeremiah, which, which now brings us on to Lamentations. Now, although Lamentations, the book itself, it doesn't say who the author was, it's universally accepted by both Jewish and Christian scholars that Jeremiah wrote it, you know, it's, it's just, you know, without naming him, the book doesn't name him, but it's obvious that it was him. And what Lamentations is, it, it, it's a, like a, a funeral dirge over the desolation of Jerusalem, um, you know, because Jerusalem has been destroyed, burnt by the Babylonian Empire, because to the last, the people would not submit to what the Lord wanted them to do. And it's pretty, pretty clear that this would have been written in the three months from the fall of Jerusalem to when he was carted off down into Egypt. So you've got that three months of Gedaliah being the governor and Jeremiah helping him. So it's pretty sure that it would have been during that three months that Jeremiah wrote Lamentations. That's what it is. It's a book, it's a poem, it's a, it's a funeral dirge lamenting the fate of Jerusalem. And, uh, you know, we'll just, like, have, have a verse or two from, from chapters just to give us a, a, a flavour of it. And, um, and in, in chapter one, you get a, a, a description of the carnage and the desolation of the city, because, I mean, thousands of people were just massacred. And you get a description of that. And the emphasis in this chapter, the lament in this chapter, is that it was because of sin. It's because of sin. Had they repented, it wouldn't have happened. God would have spared them. And the way it's written is that Jerusalem is personified as crying out. So, you know, um, uh, like in verse 1, it says, How deserted lies the city, once so full of people. How like a widow is she, who once was great among the nations. 
she who was queen among the provinces has now become a slave. So there, the city is personified. And then in verse 12, you get this, and, and is it nothing to you, all you who pass by? Look around and see, is any suffering like my suffering that was inflicted on me, that the Lord has brought on me in the day of his fierce anger? And it's a picture of, of you know, so the city itself crying out, saying to people, have you ever seen suffering like mine? You know, so, so the poetic tool there of personifying Jerusalem. Um, in chapter 2, it goes on to say that it was the anger of the Lord that has done this. Because there mustn't be any mistaking. It wasn't just that the Babylonians thought, oh, let's invade Israel. Babylonian was the tool of God. It was God who has done this. It was God who brought that calamity on. You know, not, not just some quirk of history, not just some, oh, well, that's the way it goes. It was the anger of the Lord that did it. And in this chapter, there's a call for repentance, to be genuine from the people. Um, in verse 1, it says, How the Lord has covered the daughter of Zion with the cloud of his anger. He has hurled down the splendor of Israel from heaven to earth. He has not remembered his footstool in the day of his anger. See, it, it was God who, who had done it. And then in verse 14, a tremendously significant verse, it says, The visions of your prophets were false and worthless. They did not expose your sin to ward off your captivity. The oracles they gave you were false and misleading. And what Jeremiah is saying there was the fact that from the word go, he was preaching for them to repent and that God would judge them, that the Babylonians would come if they didn't repent. And they saw him as the big baddie. The false prophets were saying, oh no, everything's fine, everything's fine. No problem, no problem. And what Jeremiah is saying here, he says, look, who was it who really loved you? Who was it who was doing you good? You, you said I was the baddie, but if you'd listened to me and turned from your sins, this wouldn't have happened. But you listened to the false prophets, and they kind of made you feel good at the time. But do you feel good now? No. Because they didn't expose your sins. That's the point, isn't it? The false prophets didn't locate what the problem was, and the problem was sin. Therefore, the destruction of the city. You know, and, and there's Jeremiah saying the truth. It was harder. What I was saying was harder at the time than what they were saying. But if you'd listened to me, you'd have it easier now. It's always foolishness to go against God, even if the thing that he's saying to us is maybe the hardest thing we can think of. Even when God is having you do the hardest thing you've ever done, believe you me, in the long run, it's going to be easier to do it. And we all know that, don't we? Because we all know what it's like when we've resisted him. It's worse in the long run. It might have got you out of a difficulty then, but you're in a whole load of trouble now, aren't you? See, and that's the way it works with God. That's the way it works here. And then in chapter 3, it's just Jeremiah's personal grief. He just pours out his own grief, his own sorrow. Um, you know, just his own tears at everything that's happened. 
And um, then verse 4, uh, chapter 4 describes the actual suffering during the siege, describes the cannibalism that took place. Uh, you know, mothers were eating their own children. Uh, or, or almost the ultimate evil that came, you know, because the people would not give in to the Babylonians. Jeremiah was saying, submit to them, let them in, don't resist them. And the people were saying, we will resist them. Therefore the siege went on, therefore they were lowered to cannibalism. At every point we see the, the, the awfulness, the results of going against the Lord. And then chapter 5 is, is a cry for mercy and restoration. And it actually ends up the last, we'll actually read from verse 19, the last four chapters, uh, last four verses. And this is how it ends up. He says, You, O Lord, reign forever. Your throne endures from generation to generation. Why do you always forget us? Why do you forsake us so long? Restore us to yourself, O Lord, that we may return. Renew our days as of old. Unless you have utterly rejected us and are angry with us beyond measure. And that, that, cry that prayer of despair ends Jeremiah what a ministry not a happy one at all but the point was remember that he prophesied that restoration would happen and that it would happen 70 years later which indeed it did and so this dreadful chapter in Israel's history did become a memory and that Israel went on to greater times afterwards when they were restored then, of course, we know sadly that when Jesus came, they rejected Jesus and went on into even worse times. And yet we know that the future that, that they've got, the future promised by all the prophets, eventually Israel will enjoy that future during the thousand-year reign of Jesus. Right, next time, Ezekiel. And just so you know, I don't know any jokes about his name either. <laughs>